Welcome to the exam room. I am your host, Brian Vardabedian. Recently, I had the chance to catch up with Dr. Kirsten Austere, who is a professor of English at Rice University in Houston. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying to yourself, Brian, you've lost your mind. You have brought an English professor into the exam room. You're supposed to be talking about technology and healthcare and everything else. Well, as it turns out, Kirsten Austere is one of the most interesting academicians I've had the chance to meet. She is an expert by training on media and medicine. She spent the last few years thinking about new media and digital technology and its applications in healthcare. She's taught some very, very interesting courses at Rice University, which we will get into. She's also my collaborator in the Medical Futures Lab. We had the chance to catch up on the campus of Rice University, and this was actually the first exam room recording that was actually off-site. We were able to cover everything from human-centered design and healthcare to the issues with medical education and the rise of the e-patient. I think you'll enjoy this really interesting discussion, and hopefully it will inspire you to think outside the limits of your silo just as Kirsten does. Enjoy. For most consumers, the search for a healthcare provider is a frustrating maze of bewildering choices and unanswered questions. And they really want to hear what other patients have to say in order to make a decision with confidence. With Loyal's Empower Solution, you have the tools to do just that. Empower your patients, the patient, and provide a solution. Maximizing star ratings while introducing deeper insights into what patients really are saying about their experience. You could sort, approve, and publish patient reviews of physicians, services, and even practices using some of the intelligent features like auto-approval and syntax highlighting. To learn more, visit them online at loyalhealth.com. Dr. Kirsten Oster, welcome to the exam room. Thank you for having me. So I'm really excited to uh, have you in the exam room with me. Um, I guess we've been friends for some time. How do we meet each other? Didn't we? That's a great story. It's an internet story. Oh, okay. T- just tell me. Cause I forget the details. I remember a little bit of it. Okay. But how do we- so this is going back to, I want to say 2011. I, I think, think so. that's right. Um, I had been... I had been doing work in medicine and media, doing research in that area for a while. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing stuff on public health, like public health films, and also on on different kinds of visualization technologies that were used in medical education. But I was doing mostly historical work. But I'd gotten to this point where I was looking at all the digital health stuff that was starting to happen, and I was really wanting to collaborate more with people who are in the field, like in the field of public health or in the field of medicine, who were like using these media technologies now and kind of form something that would be engaging directly with research and teaching and stuff on questions that were coming out of like how medicine was getting more and more technology oriented, getting more and more kind of mediated. And I wanted to find people who were working in the space. And I did a Google search, I mm-hmm. remember. <laughs> and I think I used search terms, something like social media and medicine. And lo and behold, who pops up but a doctor working right across the street in the Texas Medical Center? Because at that time, I think your blog's uh, tagline 
It was like it was social media and medicine or right. something like that, right? Right, right, right. yep. And um, so there you were. So I was like, oh my god, this is incredible. Yeah. Here he is, right here. I didn't think I would necessarily only be looking for people who could be like physically proximate, but there you were. So I was like, okay, I I got to meet this guy. And so, but your blog, I think that the only obvious contact source on the blog was Facebook. This is my recollection. Okay. Or in any case, somehow I found you on Facebook, which I wasn't super active on then, as right. I'm not really now. And I, I sent you a message, but you didn't respond to that. But then did I send you a tweet? Something like that. I, somehow, yeah, I, I remember I found the, the Facebook message months later, but... yeah. Um, we found each other, but uh, that led to a collaboration yeah. that we've had over the past uh, seven years or so, right? So, yeah, I totally remember the first time that we met up in person. It was on the campus of right. Rice University, and we met at the new Brockstein Pavilion, which is that lovely cafe over mm -hmm. there. And um, we were just kind of like talking. We talked about the MIT Media Lab and right. how we wanted like a media lab for medicine. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to do stuff that was like experiments with technology and media, but also that was examining all the changing ways that digital technology was like influencing medicine. And it was definitely like a mind melt. There, we're definitely yeah. both like, oh, I can totally get where you're coming from. Absolutely, yeah. We and had a lot of there. things in common, didn't mm -hmm. we? Yes. So we'll get we're gonna get to the medical futures lab in just a moment, but it, just to paint a picture for people, we're on the second floor of the Herring Building at Rice University. Yep. Um, Right outside the no, window. No, the third floor, actually. Third floor, okay. Yeah, technically. Right outside the window is a big, sprawling live oak, which is pretty typical of Houston. Mm -hmm. And on either side of me are floor-to-ceiling in different forms of media, movies, and books about media. Yes, that's right. So tell us about your background. You're a media professional that actually wound up getting into medicine and media. How? Yeah. What's your background? How did you get into this? Yeah, uh, I mean, so, you know, if I want, if we wanted to go on forever, I could tell you about like making movies in high school and how I was really drawn to that. But, you know, like, I didn't know that. You made movies in high I school. I did. Wow. I did. That was, it was on Super 8 film, no less. What? Where you actually, when you say cut and paste, you truly cut with you a know, scissor yeah, and yeah. paste with glue. That was how you do it with celluloid. Anyway, but so I was into film and media um, more for, I mean, so I made some, but I also, so wanted to study it. I, I realized that in, as an undergrad, and then I went to grad school to study um, film and media. But at the same time, um, I had taken a couple years off before grad school. And one of the jobs I had was as a research assistant in a department of public health and preventive medicine in, a, in the medical school in Portland, Oregon, which is where I had gone for undergrad. And, um, and I got really fascinated by the epidemiologists there. And that kind of led me on this path of being interested in public health, especially because at that time, um, this was when everyone was really um, obsessed with HIV AIDS. It was becoming part of the national consciousness. There was tons of media coverage about it. And there started being Hollywood movies about it. And I started when I went to grad school, I went to grad school to do film and media studies. And while I was doing that, I got really curious about like, the ways that contagion was being represented in media around AIDS. And I started looking at where that came from historically. That led me into looking at public health films. And so that then became my research area for a while. 
And I think the first thing that really sparked my interest in really drawing a connection with people who are in the field was that my first book, which I imagined was like for film and media studies people, it got reviewed in a journal of public health and, and they found it useful. And I was amazed and thrilled, you know, like mm -hmm. I thought, okay, so there's something there's a need for this, even among people who are doing, you know, they're doing work now. They're like in the field, they need to do health communication and they have questions that people like me might be able to help them address. So what you were doing had some utility. Exactly. The connection to health gave exactly. you some sense of purpose maybe with yeah. your academic pursuits. Totally. In your and undergrad then, right? No, this was grad school. Grad school. Okay, this was grad school. school. And so, you know, so that made me feel like, okay, for my second book, I really want to do, I was focusing on medicine rather than public health, but I really wanted to be talking to people in the field. I really wanted to use their, um, their interest in this topic to help me shape what I would be working on so that it, so that the work wouldn't be just useful to other academics, but also to doctors, right? To yep. doctors, nurses, other clinicians. And, <clears throat> you know, at that time, people were still, I mean, people have always used media in medicine, right? Like since the x-ray, medicine has been a very visual medium. And, you know, we've, we're constantly chasing the next great way to uncover invisible aspects of things that are going on in our bodies, whether it's in our brains or in our hearts or any other part of the body. And so this, there's a long history of that, right? And so, you know, it makes sense also that that continues in the present. And so that, so realizing, you know, I had done all this historical work about how people visualize the body in other eras, but of course, the way they did that in old media it has a lot of continuity with what people are doing now with digital technologies. So that kind of led me up to this moment where, you know, M Health was coming onto the scene and people were like, you know, trying to figure out how to use smartphones for, you know, to disseminate video to community health workers or connect people through social media platforms who could then exchange information in other ways. And it all, it made sense to me to think about those changes, both in relation to the stuff I'd been doing, but I was really drawn to the idea of doing it with people who are facing these questions, like in their day-to-day -day clinical lives. And that's when you reached out to me. That's when I reached out to you. And we uh, we kind of put together um, a, a, a group, a small group of people called the Medical Futures Lab, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I guess it's something of a... Of a, of a space or a thinking area, right? Mm -hmm. Or a, um, uh, which, which, uh, tell us about it. it. We've, we've had some courses that we've done. Yeah. Medical Media Arts Lab. And yeah. Right. So, so how have you translated, taken this interest and translated it to the rice population here? Yeah. So let's see. I mean, in it, the Medical Futures Lab, definitely, I mean, it came out of our conversations and collaborations, right. but we also have, we had other people in early conversations like Fred Trotter. Right. Um, also Tom Cole in the, in the Texas Medical Center and Peter Kaloran and uh, Olivia Banner and a bunch of other people. And we started with team teaching some courses here at Rice. Right. Between like you and I taught a course together. Mm -hmm. I also taught one with Peter that where we brought in stuff that was about how digital technologies are changing the practice of medicine. And how we can think about that both from the 
media and technology side of it and from the medicine side of it. So like we together, you and I made this course, Medicine in the Age of Networked Intelligence. Yep. And it was, uh, and we team taught it. We were both there uh, pretty much every session, right? And Tuesday, we kind Thursday. Of, Tuesday, Thursday. Right. We alternated out. Um, we had some brilliant students in there, oh, yeah. including, of course, Amal Lutrankar, our, right. our star student, um, who, who did a bunch of classes with us and right. worked on a MOOC with us later. But yeah, so the, so the Medical Futures Lab, um, it included projects like that, courses like that, which always had projects. This was a key thing. The students always had to have at least some part of their work for the course be engaging in some kind of public dialogue and also using media in some way to kind of experiment with expressing their ideas in different forms and for different audiences. So the Medical Media Arts Lab was um, that was that's the name of the course that I co-taught with you, right? The second one. Well, right. So the second one, yeah, exactly. So then that one, that is like a human-centered design class, right? right? And that is that was definitely influenced by work that we did um, in collaboration with folks from IDEO, like Dennis Boyle, who mm-hmm. I met through Medicine X at Stanford organized by the great Larry Chu. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if you if you knew Dennis or the IDEO folks in, in an, another setting from that. I first met Dennis at Medicine X. And mm-hmm. so that was really kind of where I drew that connection as well. Yeah. And but so- the School of Engineering too, the thinking at the School of Engineering at Rice drove the course very much. Medical Arts. Tell, tell us what the process that the students go through in that course. Yeah. So, right. So, um, <clears throat> the engineering school here has this awesome space called the, um, uh, the Oshman Engineering Design Kitchen. And um, they do this course, freshman design there, that, that a lot of the engineering students can take, where they work on what they call um, real-world problems, I think is what the term they use. And it's basically working on engineering problems that exist in the real world, like at the Houston Zoo or in an art museum or something, we thought, okay, the tools that we use, they're not so much, um, you know, like physical tools that you would use for, you know, cutting or creating an actual device, but rather they're tools that you use to represent and kind of shape ideas, which also can be very powerful in the world, right? So we thought, well, how can we adapt the engineering process for like communication and visualization and representation problems. Because right. so much of what we were talking about together in these courses were how information is changing, how the way that we access information in medicine or outside of medicine is changing and how that then is having an effect on like how we think of patients and what they can do and what they can do collaboratively and all that stuff. So we developed this process where we have what we call problem owners Right? right, who are people, um, real people, real people. They've mostly been doctors so far, but not exclusively. Though I think it would be great to have them be nurses and also even patients. Um, but where we find people who are creative and engaged people looking to address real problems that they have in their clinical lives that that exist. And that they deal with on a daily basis that are in some way a communication or representation kind of problem. 
And we work with them to um, craft a specific kind of problem statement that's like the right scope for a semester-long team of students to work on. And then over the course of the semester, we do all these human-centered design exercises, many inspired by IDEO, but also many that we've developed on our own that help them, that draw from media theory, but also readings about digital health to help the students think about how to understand both the, but the problem itself, but also the context it takes place in, and also the end user, whether that's the patients or maybe it's doctors or maybe it's nurses or it could be, you know, other teams of people. And then they go through this process where they do storyboarding, they do different kinds of narrative and other visualization exercises, they do brainstorming and all that stuff. And then they they come up with solutions to these problems over the course of a semester. And they present it, right? And in they a, present in, it, yeah. Formal almost like an engineer would do or a or an architect, design student, yep. right? Yeah, would, exactly. Would do. Yep. So what is there a project that stuck out? I remember the, the for me, the uh Texas Children's Cardiac ICU mm-hmm. designing the interface that solved the problem of uh, seeing vitals and whatnot as a team rounded. Yes. Yeah. The, so, so that was yeah. interesting to watch that play out. Yeah. Any others that you you remember that kind of – yeah, well, there's, you know, there's one project in particular that also comes out of that space, but with a different problem owner, um, that is an ongoing project. So we, I have a team of students. I just met with them yesterday. They took the course not last spring, but the spring before. Mm-hmm. And they've been working on the project continuously since. And meanwhile, another team of students has started working on a different aspect. And it's basically, it's, it's a twofold project that's about both how to kind of transmit a huge amount of complex information to parents of children with ventricular assist devices who are, as parents, very emotionally overwhelmed by the fact that they have a child who has this device implanted and they're on like a transplant list and, and they have to bring their child home and care for them. And it's super stressful. And there's all this information that they're somehow supposed to process yeah exactly and then be able to somehow go back and retrieve when they need to so there's an education part of it that's like how could we better convey this information in a way that they that their parents might be able to grasp it more effectively but then there was another piece of it too which is um what kinds of communication pathways would actually make these parents better able to either ask questions quickly or act on information that they have in such a way that it smooths the processes of of interacting with people in the clinical setting so that it kind of the whole experience works a lot better. And the thing that's been really um, fascinating about that process is it just shows you, first of all, how, you know, like what you could think of as one problem, which is like kids with this implanted device and how to essentially manage their care actually has so many different facets, many of which are not really biomedical per se, right? There, You need doctors to be involved to do the clinical part. But the, the actual problem is how people process information around that and communicate around that. And that isn't, that's a human problem. It's not like a biomedical problem. That's interesting. Yeah, So they're, but they're very interwoven. 
Hey everybody, this is Reed Smith. And this is Chris Boyer. And we are co-hosts on a show called Touchpoint, which is a podcast that's dedicated to the discussions on digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, not only for just hospitals, but health systems and physician practices. In every episode, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and other things that are impacting the healthcare industry today. And while you listen to this show, we would certainly love you to check out ours. All you have to do is swing on over to touchpoint.health for more information, and also some of the other shows that are featured on the Touchpoint Media Network. So this is re- you're really looking for ways to, to leverage technology to, for, for communication, right, and help yeah. solve some of these problems. Yeah, definitely. And um, now this issue of design has come up over and over and as part of the Medical Futures Lab. You conceived an amazing meeting this past spring. Mm. Uh, was health design, right? Health design, yeah. And I helped you, helped you shape some of it. Yeah. Um, why was it important to bring together – some of the greatest thought leaders in health design. Why now? What is it about human-centered design that made you do this? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, first of all, I think that this movement has been slowly building over uh, a number of years. And I think we're kind of reaching a critical inflection point where human-centered design has has been taken up in business and in, in many different sectors. Um, and it's been taken up in medicine, but a lot less quickly. There's been perhaps more resistance or just more inertia maybe to change. But the thing about it in medicine is that human-centered design, it's, a, it's an approach to solving problems that prioritizes the perspectives of the people who are affected most by the problem. And so it's it's centered in empathy, right? It's centered in empathy, exactly. And it really, it flips the idea that hierarchical decision-making is the best way to solve problems. And that's kind of like a core element of many changes that are happening in medicine today, where old hierarchies are being flipped in some way. And so human-centered design seems to me to be like a really perfect method for, for, for doing that, for enabling voices that have previously not really been part of the dialogue in solving problems in medicine, like patients' voices, bringing those into the conversation. But I also think that there's, there are enough people doing really amazing work in this area now we're starting to get a lot of attention that there's there's an opening for this to become part of part of medical education part of how we train people to think about what it means to be a doctor and what it means to practice medicine so at the center of this is uh, Dr. Bon Koo at Jefferson University in mm-hmm, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and he was president at Health Design. Yes. You're, 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 and he's been one of the leaders in, in health design. Um, he's really started a movement, hasn't he? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, an, he's a good ambassador. Right. We all talked at and the And very meeting. humble, too. He's right. very humble. Right. He, we all talked at the meeting about how, um, you know, we also had who we called – the person who we called the godfather of, right. of human-centered design, Dennis Boyle. He was there in the room, and I think he, he graciously accepted um, 
that that title that we bestowed on him right. then, um, because he he has done such important influential work. And Stacy Chang, who was also there from the Dell School in right. Austin, he you know he worked under Dennis at IDEO, and and all of us have been influenced by um, that work in some way or other. But I think. Uh, one of the things that um, that Bon Coup has been doing that is really cool is moving outside of the clinical setting to start thinking about health in the community as something that human-centered design can address as a way of kind of connecting the clinical and the environmental. He's driving around Philadelphia with an Airstream, I've he, heard. He is. He's I've... not selling hot dogs. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the thing that strikes me about human-centered design is that it really is something that we all can embrace and do on a day-to-day or minute-to-minute basis almost. Yeah. Um, it isn't necessarily live in a silo of design schools or areas of medical schools. And right. I think to your point, it kind of – it really is a new way of thinking about everything that we do in all of our processes and emergency rooms and, and whatever. So – Medical education. Uh, Dr. Koo teaches at, at, at Jefferson uh, University, and um, you've worked with some of our students here at Baylor, and mm-hmm. you work with undergraduates at Rice. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, what Bond is doing is is really teaching people a new way to think. Yeah. What's wrong with medical education, or what what needs to happen in medical medical education that's not happening now? That what's missing? From yeah. your perspective as someone, as an outsider looking in. Yeah. Well, okay. So first I would say, and I think human-centered design is a great um, uh, demonstration of this, is that, you know, you and I have talked a lot over the years of how medicine really needs more voices from outside medicine mm-hmm. to really expand how we think about what health and disease really are, how we make sense of them, how that means different things for different populations, but also how things like technology are becoming so much more part of medicine. And that's not part of medical education at, at all. all, right? So if you only focus on you know, what is the kind of purely biomedical part of medicine and focus on that as the education of the doctor, then they're never going to learn how to both deal with emerging technologies that patients may want to use it with them, right. but also how to how to deal with the, the constant influx of information to their own, you know, field mm-hmm. of expertise. And then on top of that, how to think about like the human being who is the patient who has a life beyond their diagnosis that may play a much bigger role than their genetics or than anything that they would learn, you know, in anatomy lab, for example. So how to understand that medicine is just like a facet of a larger life experience to do that you need to bring in people who who do research and teach on that, but mm-hmm. also who think about the context that you are treating people in in different ways. So, you know, I would say that part of the inspiration for a lot of the stuff that we've done in the Medical Futures Lab is tackling that technology part of it and saying, you know, look at the world that the students, the medical students today are coming out of. They're constantly using technology everywhere they go. They enter medical school and it's like a door is slammed on mm-hmm. the outside world and like all of a sudden it's almost like pretend you don't have a smartphone right. like pretend the internet doesn't exist if you just look at the way the curriculum is designed yep. and how lectures are delivered and all that so you know 
what are all of the creative opportunities, not just the risks and challenges, right? Because, you know, often if something comes up, it's like, oh God, don't post pictures of patients on Facebook, right? Like that mm-hmm. message is out there in medical school. But but how about beyond that? Like what are the opportunities for new kinds of collaboration, new forms of understanding, new kinds of research discoveries that could come from all these technologies? And, you know, it, for students to be real leaders in the future, they need to be allowed to like embrace what they already know about being really technological people mm-hmm but melds that with the human part of medicine. I think traditionally um, medicine, when people went into medicine, they they entered their career, did one thing, and when they when they retired, they were almost doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think we're, we're facing the fact that um, medicine is changing now, not by generations, but by months and years. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, to your point, uh, students just really aren't prepared for that flexibility. I know when Eric Topol came here in 2012, when uh, he addressed the Baylor faculty and someone asked him, what is going to be the greatest, the most important thing when choosing a medical student for the future? And he said, flexibility. Mm-hmm. Because it's true, the space is changing so quickly. Yeah. Um, but it is it is embarrassing how medical education really has not kept up with. Uh, I think one of the challenges, of course, is that we uh, we really don't know what doctors are going to be doing 20 years from now, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, so it is It is hard to know precisely what skill sets will be necessary, but um, interesting times we live in. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, you know, one of the things we talked about was this idea of working with people within the Texas Medical Center. And mm-hmm. one of the things that's come about through our years together are, are all the people who come out of the woodwork who are doing interesting projects yeah. at Texas Medical Center. Mm-hmm. Um and some of that's come from TMCX, which is our innovation mm-hmm. center for the Texas Medical Center. Mm-hmm. But just the courses that you've started have pulled in people who are doing interesting things. Yeah, um, that's really true. It's pulled people together, right? It has. It has. And I think, um, you know, it's fascinating because our, you know, our problem owners, as we call them in Medical Media Arts Lab, they they do have to dedicate some time. They're not paid to do this, mm-hmm. you know, like, but they all, they keep coming back. They want to do it over and over again because they find both a sense of community and also, I think, kind of a sense of optimism Mm -hmm. that there that it is possible that change is possible, you know, and that these problems that all seem so intractable and complicated and just like difficult um, that that they're not actually impossible to deal with. And I think being able to kind of flip the perspective of, you know, oh, we have to kind of go very cautiously and slowly in dealing with technology and medicine and instead say, well, let's try to think creatively about how how technology could actually help us solve some problems. Um, I think people find that invigorating. And so it's actually, we've gotten to the point where word of mouth leads people to that class. So I get I get contacted by folks who I've never met before, but who say, oh, I've heard about this cool class that right. you're doing. I'd really love to be involved. You know, when are you doing it again? Can mm-hmm. I please participate? So it's yeah, cool. When you look at burnout, I, I look around me and I see all the doctors experiencing burnout and all the yeah. dialogue about burnout. You, you this is the most exciting time to be in medicine. There was so much opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And as you suggested, we as healthcare professionals, we are we are empowered and we have agency, mm-hmm. and we just don't know it. And I yeah. think when when projects like this come up, or when you see a group of five rice 
undergraduates solving a problem and coming up with an iteration, it is inspiring. Mm -hmm. And it makes us, you know, it pulls us back to why we originally were so excited about this. Mm -hmm. Well, Um, you know what this reminds me of? I remember you talking about medicine having this culture of permission. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and the problems that come from that, right? The idea right. that which is also rooted in a very paternalistic and hierarchical old school Absolutely. model, right? Yep. So the idea that you couldn't possibly as a medical student just go ahead and start a blog. Right. You know, or like, you actually reflect right. on things that are going on in a way that might help other people too, just mm-hmm. for example, um like the the idea that you would have to wait for someone above you to say like go do that now um it it really prevents a lot of innovation and creativity that i think it's there i mean it's there because we see it in all of the people that we collaborate with yeah there just aren't as many outlets as there could be we're trained from our earliest days in pre-medical education to walk in lockstep and yeah. don't stray off the path yep and um this culture of permission is really, um, I think, along with nostalgia, a couple of the elements that I think are really holding us back from exploding into the future in the way that we could. Mm-hmm. I want to touch on e-patients. Now, patients have been part of your courses as well, right? Yeah, yeah. We always, and I, I have to say that I would say this is very influenced by um, the the stuff that the e-patients at Medicine X have done, and, and I'm... Uh, I'm very grateful for all of my involvement in that in that stuff at Stanford because I, I really learned a lot about how to think about patients as collaborators um, that I didn't I I hadn't really fully understood before. And you know, one of the things that we do in the Medical Media Arts Lab is patients are involved in the whole process of identifying problems, but also um, not just talking to the student design teams about what the problem is and what it looks like and how it develops over time, but also in giving them feedback on their designs at every stage and really kind of, you know, they are understood as the ultimate end user and in that sense kind of arbiter of success of a design, right? Because most of the time there, you know, there aren't very many substantive medical problems um, that we deal with that don't have the patient at the center of them, you know, despite the fact that this this idea of patient-centered care is like supposedly this new thing, right? right? But I mean, like, who, yeah. uh, who, you know? Well, I remember when I first heard heard about this early in the days of Medicine X, yeah. and I was I I didn't fully buy into it, mm. but I was attracted to it. And just years later, you can see how it's it's taking hold and how important it is. And just with your coursework introducing young undergrads during mm-hmm. these problem-solving sessions mm-hmm. to the input of a patient mm-hmm. is really kind of revolutionary. It shouldn't be, but it's it's been interesting to watch it all evolve and play out. Well, so if you think about it, you know, most of these students are pre-med. Mm-hmm. And so when they go to medical school, to them it's going to be normal and expected mm-hmm. to – well, what do patients think, right? right, right. And so that's going to introduce a new element that, you know, I, I do think about this as culture change. Like I, I think of it as the stuff that we're doing with undergrads is enabling them to bring something into medicine that even if they're not learning it in medical school, they're going to, over time, bring these ideas into new environments. And of course, we're not the only people doing this. So it's coming from other places too, like the stuff Bon is doing, stuff Joyce Lee is doing, Matt Trowbridge, Stacey Chang, all these people. So, 
you know, these, it's like planting little, little seeds. So the students that now they, you know, they read the e-patient white paper, they, they talk to students, they're going to go into medicine and they're going to want to hear from students. Did so, I say students? I meant to say patients. Yeah, I think you said students, but <laughs> a lot of patients are students, so. That's true. I just want to finish up by talking a little bit about um, how you've been received in uh, a, a very staid university, Department of English, yet mm-hmm. you're doing this stuff that's really not what you'd imagine an English professor doing. True. Um, you're, you're really really uh, truly outside the box in terms of the way you see put ideas together. What advice would you have for people who are in your position where you have, you know, you're in a, you're in a job or a situation as an academician or a provider and you're doing things differently and you want to do them the way you've done them. I mean, what, any Mm. advice you'd have? Right. Uh, Yeah. Because it's true that, um, even though these kinds of experiments, like with human-centered design, they may be attractive to lots of um, faculty here and there in medical schools, right? But it's not like there's been a total sea change and everyone's no. on board and everyone will expect, you know, um, and perhaps even like that, that all faculty, if they hear a, a medical student saying, well, what about the patients? They, they may say, well, yeah. we don't need to hear from the patients or something like that. And then what does that medical student do, right? So, I mean, I do think that it involves taking risks to do stuff outside of the most traditional paths that are that are still very much with us. I mean, right. in, in higher education as well as in medical school. And so, you know, one thing I think is important is to look for people in your institution who are, who are allies – Mm-hmm. And who um, perhaps are a little further along than you and can give support as well as guidance on kind of, you know, what risks to take and when. You know, I, th- I think that now it's easier for me to take risks as a full professor than it would be for a medical student. Right, right. But a medical student that comes out of an undergrad environment where they take a course with, you know, an English professor and an MD who are telling them together, like, this is, you know, these are the exciting new developments that we really need to see in medicine. You know, they may be able to create a very persuasive argument that is convincing, right? So in a way, part of what I would say is, you you know you find your allies but also do your homework right like mm-hmm. like if you can make a strong solid compelling case you know and you can persuade other people on that basis understanding where they're coming from right so this is human centered design again too right you have to understand where the people who might resist are coming from and what they might be open to anyway right so if you can come from that kind of place and really you know, have a good, a solid explanation for why, even though it's different, it's important to do what you're doing, you know, you might be able to make little changes. So, Kirsten, you have uh, really an interesting story. Uh, where can people learn more about you? You've done a TED Talk, haven't you? Yes. A yes. TED Talk. A and you, are you, are there's, you... there's a bunch of stuff. There's a bunch of videos online, I think, here and there. I have some of them on my website, which is just kirstenoster.org. Uh, we'll put we'll put them in, put a couple of links in the show notes. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. 
it's really been wonderful having you in the exam room. Thank you. It's been um, wonderful being here. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it was a, a great walk down memory lane on some <laughs> level, but uh, you're certainly an example of someone who has bridged disciplines in a way that I think is positively impacting the next generation of uh, next generation of health professionals. Well, I hope so. There's a lot of work to be done, but you know it's fun to do it. Hope to have you back. Thank you. This show is made possible in part by the Social Health Institute. Through research and partnerships with healthcare organizations around the country, the Social Health Institute explores new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategy. To learn more about the Social Health Institute, visit them online at socialhealthinstitute.com. That's socialhealthinstitute.com. Thank you for joining us in the exam room. If you like what you heard here, please rate the program, review us, or let folks know about us. And if you have any really cool ideas that you'd like discussed here, please feel free to let us know. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.